The Bob Murphy Show, episode 176. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This one, I thought it would be useful if I just provided a framework for thinking about these issues of tech censorship, which have been bubbling up for years at this point, but obviously have really come to a head uh, since the mass purges of people associated with the alt-right and lesser crimes since uh, January 6th. And the reason I'm, I'm using the term framework rather than saying, here's how you should think about it, is I am not going to end up saying, and so here's my three-point plan for saving the internet. That's not what I'm doing here. But there's a lot of sloppy talk out there that people are throwing around terms that don't quite work or using analogies that don't really make sense if you push on them too hard. And so I'm just trying to give a framework for you to think about these issues more clearly, or at least that's the intent. So first of all, there's a distinction between the First Amendment and the principle of free speech. And unfortunately, a lot of people use these terms interchangeably and that's, you know, it's gotten to the point where people think, hey, this violates my, you know, the First Amendment rights or that's free speech. And they, th- they think it means the same thing. And it's, those are distinct things. And I think it's important to, at least for you to hear <laughs> some of the more accurate descriptions of what these, these words mean and, and how they apply. So the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution reads... Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Okay, so obviously there's a reason people use the First Amendment and free speech or freedom of speech interchangeably because it's the phrases in it. But again, the critical part of this that I think a lot of people miss is what's the first phrase here in the First Amendment? It's Congress shall make no law, all right? So originally, just to really make sure you see the distinction here, it was constitutional at the federal level if a state had a law saying you're not allowed to criticize the governor, for example, or if a state had a religion that you know was for all the people of Virginia, you know, you have to be this particular religious denomination. Now, such measures may have violated the state constitutions, and I would argue they would violate, you know, the natural law, let's say. But the point was originally the First Amendment was limiting what Congress, what the federal government could do to you. So the First Amendment was merely saying the federal government cannot restrict anyone's freedom of speech nor can it establish a religion and so on and so forth. All right, but the states could still do that. That that has nothing to, you know, the the First Amendment at that point originally conceived didn't restrict even state governments, let alone did it restrict private newspapers or other forums from, quote, censoring somebody's speech or ability to communicate to the public, okay? So make sure you realize that. Now, it gets a little bit tricky. So here, I'm just going to read from the Encyclopedia Britannica's entry, the online version, of course, on the First Amendment. So here it says, the First Amendment, like the rest of the Bill of Rights, originally restricted only what the federal government may do and did not bind the states. Most state constitutions had their own bills of rights and those generally included provisions similar to those found in the First Amendment. But the state provisions could be enforced only by state courts. Now here's where it gets tricky. In 1868, however, so remember, folks, 1865 is when the so-called Civil War ended. So in 1868, the 14th Amendment was added to the U.S. Constitution, 
and it prohibited states from denying people, quote, liberty without, quote, due process. Okay, so this is, you know, during what's called Reconstruction, and so they wanted to make sure that everybody, you know, the formerly or former slaves who are now freed men and women weren't being denied their liberty in the southern states. And so that's the reason for the 14th Amendment coming in. And so again, what what it said was you you couldn't deny someone's liberty without due process. So now I'm, I'm back to reading this Britannica entry. Since then, the U.S. Supreme Court has gradually used the due process clause to apply most of the Bill of Rights, meaning at the federal level, to state governments. In particular, from the 1920s to the 40s, the Supreme Court applied all the clauses of the First Amendment to the states. Thus, the First Amendment now covers actions by federal, state, and local governments. The First Amendment also applies to all branches of government, including legislatures, courts, juries, and executive officials and agencies. This includes public employers, public university systems, and public school systems. Okay, so I'll stop reading from the Britannica article there. So this is why, you know, given this history, that it's understandable people now think the First Amendment protects anything because it has gradually been expanded to, again, not just cover the state governments. In other words, because of the 14th Amendment, the U.S. Supreme Court at the federal level, you know, the highest law of the land, court of the land, started, as it says, the 20s and the 40s to say state governments weren't allowed to violate someone's first amendment rights because that would be a violation of due process. And so, so now, you know, it's, it's not true. A, a state couldn't pass a law saying it's illegal to criticize the governor that would get struck down as a restriction or a violation of their first amendment rights. But again, strictly speaking, the only reason the first amendment to the U S constitution applies to this, at the state level is because of the way the court's, have interpreted the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, okay? And so, and then since too, it's applying to all government employers and things like school teachers. So that's why if some school teacher at a public school goes out and has a Trump sign in her yard and then starts taking heat from the principal, that's arguably a violation of her First Amendment rights, Right, it, because she is a school teacher, should not be getting in trouble at work for her political free speech expression, since she's working for the government and the government has rules pertaining to how the government's going to treat its own employees. All right, so that's how that works. But again, notice, even though it's been expanded by those various court rulings, the First Amendment still is basically restricting what government can do to you. It's not at all limiting what people in the private sector can do to each other. So standard example for this kind of stuff, if I see an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times that I disagree with and I write a letter to the editor trying to point out the numerous fallacies involved and they don't print my letter, that's not a violation of my First Amendment rights. Incidentally, I would also argue it's not a violation of my right to free speech. Again, ultimately where I'm going with this, I'll, I'll... come back to it at the end, but I'll just mention it now. You know, Rothbardian property rights framework, it's really not helpful to think you have all these other, these distinct rights, especially when in certain situations, one right trumps another one. Like that's just a really confused and unhelpful way of thinking about stuff. It's a lot easier if you just think in terms of property rights. And so, you know, who owns the newspapers? So they don't, they don't have to print my letter and it's not a question of, but don't I have a right to free speech and aren't they? No, you don't have a right to use other people's property. So again, notice that this spirit of that, of that sort of, you know, Rothbardian perspective, let's call it, does not conflict with what we mean when we talk about the government can't interfere with your right to free speech or the government can't, you know, the, violate your First Amendment rights. Those are compatible because... When the First Amendment says the U.S. government or Congress can't restrict your rights, they're not referring to the fact that if there was like a, a newspaper that the Congress published and say, oh, you, the Congress isn't allowed to exercise editorial discretion. Well, no, I mean, there's an infinite number of possible statements people might want to publish in a particular thing that the government 
owns. That's not what it means. What it's saying is the government can't see you using property in a lawful, voluntary manner and then stopping you from doing it in a way that would interfere with your ability to express your political speech. Okay, so again, just to rephrase all that in case I lost you, given that there is a coercive state, it does make sense that there are bills of rights and that there are specific prohibitions on the coercive state from interfering with people's ability, especially to express dissenting political statements, criticizing the regime. That, that you know, that's a, a staple in the Western tradition and that's, that's good stuff. I'm not saying that's goofy or that, oh, that's confused when you really push it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when you try to say, all right, in a free society where there is no coercive state, what's the analog of our right to free speech or, you know, our First Amendment rights if we're in the U.S. system, in a Rothbardian world, where do I look around and find that? And I'm saying it isn't going to be anywhere because it just means you, you, you obey property rights. If it's a free, voluntary society where most people respect property rights and there's no institutional violator of them, you don't need to have this thing called right to free speech because really that only makes sense in the context of this coercive state. Because even, like I say, in the current sense where we do have this coercive state to say you have a right to free speech does not mean other people have to use their property in ways they disagree with in order to cater to you getting your message out just so again the the publishers of the new york times don't have to run every letter they get they couldn't that would be impossible so clearly it can't be that to satisfy everyone's rights an impossibility needs to occur that's goofy okay incidentally Notice, I'm just going off on a little bit of a tangent here on that discussion about when I said hypothetically, if Congress published a newspaper, then, you know, the, the First Amendment's not talking about Congress has to publish every perspective in the newspaper. It's saying Congress can't go out and stop people from voluntarily using their own property in ways they want. That's really what the First Amendment is prohibiting Congress from doing. Um, this is why a lot of economists in the free market tradition say that it might make sense to talk about a regime that has economic liberties but doesn't have political liberties. Okay, so and Singapore is the one that people often point to. They say, yeah, the, the, the economy in Singapore is pretty open, you know, low taxes, low regulation, uh, you know, interference in the labor market, blah, 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 is pretty, pretty well. But it's an authoritarian regime. Like you can't criticize the government or else they're going to cane you, All right? And that might not be the ideal system to someone who's a classical liberal or a libertarian, but it's, it's feasible. What doesn't work, they say, is a regime that doesn't have economic liberties, right? That has socialism where the state plans the economy, tells everyone what job to have, allocates the means of production as it sees fit, without markets and prices, but then ostensibly grants political or civil liberties to the people, right? So a regime that says, hey, we're going to run the economy, but if you want to criticize us, go ahead. You know, that, that's fine. You know, so we, we're an open society where dissent is encouraged or welcomed, but we're just going to run the economy and then that's how we're going to do it, right? So again, in that twofold distinction, this would be a regime that grants political liberty, but not economic liberty. And the argument is that really doesn't make sense. That doesn't work in practice because since the, if the state owns all the newspapers and all the radios and all the TVs and all the, you know, tech platforms, then they can control speech even in their role as allocating scarce resources, right? Cause you can't print every letter to the editor. It's impossible. And so it's a, it's a mirage to, for the state to argue they're going to be open to dissent and, and a lot go ahead and you can, you know, organize against us and do whatever you want and we're not going to punish you, but we're also going to run the economy. That that's, that's foolish to think you could have that kind of a system and it would work. You know, in the limit, if the state can take all the dissent, all the, the undesirables, the people, the malcontents, the people who are troublemakers and have them go to some remote region of the country in order to do experiments for, for science, like out in the forest somewhere far, you know, they could just do that. 
And that's in the what we're, we're not repressing anybody. You can you can organize r- protests and rallies. It's just you'll have to get on a plane and fly two thousand miles because your job is way out here, right? So you see how that works. Whereas again, the the contrast is the Singapore model. It could work to say, yeah, you can go ahead and run your business or whatever, but don't criticize the government. Okay, so when you start doing reading and looking into the, these issues of censorship by big tech, the big thing you're going to hit is what's called Section 230. So here, again, just to give you some of the background on that without me taking a particular stand, what that's referring to is there's this, it was the 1996 Communications Decency Act, sometimes just referred to as CDA. And then within that, there was Section 230. And the particular portion of that that's really relevant, that Section 230, is that it says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Okay? And so the issue has to do with if you do things that are illegal, like you break, violate obscenity laws or you defame someone, engage in libel, the, the publisher of such criminal or, or let's say illegal speech can be liable for it. And so what Section 230 was doing is saying that the people, the institutions, the platforms providing interactive computer services are not going to be construed as the publisher of such material that, you know, was coming from somebody else, right? The, the mere fact of you hosting someone's blog does not mean you are liable now as if you were the publisher of that or Facebook by, you know, what, what someone writes on Facebook about somebody else, somebody, you know, spreads a, a false rumor about someone else, makes an accusation. Facebook is not the publisher of that false claim. And so Facebook is not liable for that, right? So the the reason for this, why they had that in there is they didn't want there to be a chilling effect on the ability for people to communicate on the internet, which, you know, in 1996 was still in its relative infancy, right? Because the, the fear was who's going to want to host an internet platform and allow users to generate content and, and put it on there if the host is then going to be liable for everything that everybody puts on there, all right? So that's where that comes from. And you can obviously see now why this is going to play such a big role in these debates about tech censorship. And so the way some critics of the big tech companies are using this is they're saying, um, they're making a distinction between the platform and the publisher. And they're saying something like this, that a newsstand can't be prosecuted if some of the material that it contains has libelous or defamatory content or obscene content, right? That it's, it's the publisher of that. So, right, if the, someone writes a, a story in National Review saying Al Gore is a, is a fraud and he took money from the Chinese to spread the hoax of global warming and the newsstand carries National Review magazine and it's up there, that maybe Al Gore can go ahead and sue National Review for running such a scurrilous piece. But the guy who runs the newsstand that just, you know, he has newspapers there, all kinds of magazines for sale to customers walking by, that per- he's not liable. He's like, whoa, whoa, I didn't publish that. I'm just the platform here that's offering this stuff to the public. Okay, and so what Ted Cruz and people like that are arguing, now that they're mad at Twitter and Facebook for kicking off conservatives, is they're saying, look at, you've been hiding behind this Section 230 saying that you're just a platform, that you're not a publisher. And so, okay, if you want to do that, that's fine. But then you can't curate the content on your websites, right? Because if you're just a platform and you're saying, hey, we're not liable, we're not the ones publishing these odious views or, you know, these people organizing things. And so that's why we're not liable. Don't, don't sue us. Go ahead and sue the authors of this content, we're just hosting it. Okay, you can say that, Ted Cruz is arguing, but then you can't go through and kick off conservatives or you know people that you think have ties to the alt-right or whatever because now you are acting like a publisher. You're picking and choosing. You're, you're exercising editorial discretion. 
So if you're going to do that, now you're a publisher and now you're going to lose the protections of Section 230. So you have to choose. So, so, all right. So that's that's what the argument is, just folks for at home. That now I I never fully got that. That, that that analogy never rang true to me, and here's why: the person running a newsstand doesn't have to carry every possible newspaper and magazine. Again, that that would be impossible. There's too many of them, and and even besides just the impossibility of it, why couldn't the owner of a newsstand exercise political bias, as it were? Right? Maybe the, the newsstand can't stand Keynesians, and so he's not going to carry the New York Times because he doesn't want anyone to see Paul Krugman's column. As far as I know, that's not illegal for the for the owner of the newsstand to say, I'm not carrying the New York Times here. And yet that wouldn't make him a publisher. So I, I think that analogy doesn't fully work. And then I did read some other things and other people whom I found to be pretty persuasive have also argued that this platform publisher distinction is is a red herring. It doesn't get you anywhere and it's just confusing the debate. So in particular, Section 230 as is does not make a publisher platform distinction. All right, so it's not the case that the way Section 230 is right now, you have to declare which one you are. That's And, and for one thing, there's plenty of, of websites that are both, right? There's a lot of user-generated content, but also the website itself publishes material. Just And also, too, like an actual newspaper has a lot of content created by others, and yet it also, you know, has an editorial page where the editors speak, right? So there's, and when I say the newspaper has content created by others, I mean things like classified ads and stuff like that. I don't just mean the reporter writing a story. All right, so um, so you can see that these distinctions don't really work and in any event, if you're going to use the newsstand versus the magazine analogy and say the newsstand is the platform or the host and the magazine is the publisher, again, the platform or the host, the, guy, the person who owns a newsstand, he's allowed to pick and choose what's sent in. And you know, people can say, well, isn't what Facebook and Twitter are doing, isn't that more like if the owner of a newsstand did carry the New York Times, but he would always go in and black out Paul Krugman's column? you know, with black marker and then still sell the New York Times, but have crew. So number one, you know, we might want to applaud such a person. But number two, I, I don't, whatever you want to say about that, like maybe the New York Times would get mad and say, hey, if we're going to provide, you know, and wholesale prices our, our, our newspaper to you, you can't be blacking it out because that is going to anger our customers. Or the customer could get mad and say, what are you doing? I paid you for the New York Times and I'm walking down the street and then I realize you blacked out some of it. Give me my money back or whatever. But surely by the person taking out a black marker and crossing out Paul Krugman's column, it wouldn't mean he was now liable for uh, a defamation suit in some other magazine that he carries if he weren't already liable before, right? So the fact that whether he's liable for something he carries really shouldn't hinge on does he curate the the contents of his newsstand that that would you could kind of see that that it really wouldn't matter one way or the other let me just make sure you're following me let's say somebody is flipping through a magazine that he got from a newsstand and sees an article in there where someone makes all kinds of crazy scurrilous accusations against him the person reading it and he wants to sue the owner of the newsstand and he goes to his lawyer and says, hey, can we sue that guy? Because he's carrying a magazine that published all these false accusations against me or allegations against me. His lawyer wouldn't say, well, let's watch this guy and see if he ever takes out a black marker and messes up the New York Times and then we'll pounce. Like that, that would have nothing to do with it. Okay, so <laughs> what I'm doing here in case you're getting lost, I'm just saying when you delve into, if you choose to go this route into the Section 230 discussion that you'll see around tech censorship, people like to bring up this idea of the, publisher versus the platform and they use this analogy of a newsstand versus the publisher of a magazine and i'm saying i don't think that's a good analogy there's that's not how the law works right now and if you tried to change the the internet law to look like that it would be screwy because if you tried to apply that to actual newsstands right now it wouldn't make any sense so there you go that's my thoughts on that what i will do i will there's a electronic frontier foundation eff they have a really good article 
on 2.30. So I'll, in, I'll include that on the show notes page. So again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 176 if you want to see these links. So I'll put that up there um, if you want to go check that out. So the, the spirit of what's going on in section 230 is ironically, it's almost like the opposite of what a, a Ted Cruz or somebody might, might make you think. That what they did with 230 is they wanted to encourage internet providers to moderate their sites to weed out, you know, pornographic material or, you know, people harassing each other, that kind of stuff. And so they wanted to reassure the site owners that by you doing that, by you having some basic minimum standards of stuff you're going to remove, we're not going to then, that doesn't mean that therefore you endorse or you're publishing anything that gets through your, your filter, right? So, so they, in other words, they wanted to empower the people putting content up on the internet or, or hosting it, I should say, that go ahead and have your standards of decency and, you know, civil civility and all that kind of stuff. And, and we assure you with the section 230, like what we're spelling out here is that by you doing that, that's in no way you saying that you're now a publisher of anything that gets through. So it's, and just to give you guys an idea, I, I ran into this problem when I started my own blog that I had to decide, was I going to, was I going to moderate the comments? And in the beginning, I thought, well, no, I'm not going to moderate them because if I go in and start zapping comments that I think are out of line or, you know, someone's being too mean or whatever, then won't that mean any comment that I don't zap, I'm perfectly fine with. And especially if I don't want to spend hours every day going through and carefully parsing everybody's comments and whatever that, you know, if I, if I don't want to do that. So I wanted to sort of have a plausible deniability approach to just approve everything. And then if somebody ever complained to me about, Bob, did you see what this guy wrote as a comment in your blog post, you know, yelling at some other commenter, are you okay with, I could just truthfully say, I don't moderate the comments. And so therefore I'm off the hook morally. I'm not talking about legal issues here. I'm just saying like, how do I sleep at night? knowing I have this blog where people are leaving comments. But after a while, I, I dropped that. It was just goofy because clearly, you know, somebody leaves something really like directly threatening someone or using all kinds of slurs. You know, I'm not going to leave that up there. That's just, that's not good for the community. You know, just people scrolling my blog and they see that. It turns them off. They don't want to come back. So clearly I'm zapping that stuff. And yet I'm going to also say, if, if I don't zap a comment, that doesn't mean... I wholeheartedly agree with the sentiments expressed therein. All right, so that's kind of what's going on with Section 230 with these uh, companies saying, go ahead and have your own internal policies for how you moderate, and we are not going to treat you under any circumstances, whether you have you know, moderation policies or not, you're not going to be construed as the publisher of this material. Let's take a quick break from the discussion for some housekeeping here. For those of you who were in the supporting listeners group and you got locked out of Facebook, we've since moved to MeWe. So if you can't get back into Facebook to see the instructions for how to get over to MeWe, just contact me directly and I'll help you out. For those of you who would like to join the supporting listeners group, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute and you can see the, the relatively paltry amount that you would need to hand me in those dirty fiat dollars in order to get into the fun group at MeWe. And Always remember, if you can't make a financial contribution, it still helps a lot. If you share these episodes with people you think might be interested, give them a little taste. Just, hey, hey, what about, this? what about this perspective? That's always a great help as well. Thanks for listening, everybody, and let's get back to the show. Okay, so how now should we think about tech censorship from a property rights perspective, you know, a libertarian perspective in the tradition of Murray Rothbard? So here, let's start first in a scenario where it's Rothbard land. All property is in private hands. There's no coercive state. Everything is pretty much voluntary, you know, except for minor little aberrations of criminals breaking into stores and whatnot, but the private police and courts handle that stuff. All right, so it's a great little society. And then the question is, what do these issues of tech censorship look like in that world? So here, it's pretty clear Companies have their terms of service. They're all they're private companies, bro. And if there's some social media site 
or organization company that decides to kick you out, the only grounds you would have for complaint or redress is if when you first joined and they showed you what the terms of service were, if they didn't have a clause in there giving them the sole discretion as to when they could boot you and they said you could only be removed under these conditions and if you hadn't violated those conditions and they kicked you out. All right, so so keep that in mind. It's when we say, hey, it's a private company, they can do what they want. That doesn't mean they can just go back on their contracts, right? So like a, a firm that hires a worker and says, you know, you're entitled to this many breaks per day and then you also get to go use the company workout room and we can, we're going to have a sauna and, da, da, and then you go to the workout room and there's nothing there. You know, you, you can ultimately, you could sue them if the breach were sufficient and it would be goofy just to say, what are you talking about? It's a private company. They can do it to their employees, whatever they want. No, they can't ex post change the rules on you. If you guys signed a contract and they said they were going to do such and such, and then they don't. So to say it's a private company doesn't mean they're not bound by contractual obligation. But again, assuming that the original thing you may have signed with them or agreed, clicked on and agreed to gave them the ability to remove users basically at their discretion, then you, you have no grounds to re redress. You can, if they kick you out for something goofy, you can tell the world about that if you can figure out a way, way to get that information out to try to convince other people that, hey, you should stop doing business with this company over here. Because, you know, I, just because I, I said the guy who ran that social media site was a jerk, he kicked me off the platform. So, I, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't join up with them or I would take your business elsewhere because this guy's so fickle. You know, do you, do you really want to invest the time in building up a following on this guy's site when he just boots you if, he, if, if the mood strikes him? So you can do that, right? Because just like they're a private company, well, so is everybody else a private entity. And I can unilaterally decide I'm going to leave this, this social media site if, if I hear plausible stories about people being treated in what I consider to be an unfair fashion. So that's fine too, right? So when, you know, back to the real world, when people get kicked off Twitter for reasons they think are stupid and then they complain about it and then other people say, yeah, that does stink. When st it's annoying when some people say, hey, it's a private company, right? That Right, it's a private company and so maybe they have the legal right to kick the person off. Again, it would depend on the terms of service and all that stuff, but let's assume that's satisfied. And I'm a private person who owns my voice box, so I'm allowed to say, that's not cool right? Just like Twitter can kick people off, I can say out loud or type on my keyboard because I own my computer. It's private property. I don't think that was a good decision. And the people who got booted can go ahead and complain about it, right? So to say, hey man, it's a private company. If what you mean is you're not allowed to criticize them, well then, you know, you, we could say to that critic, hey man, they own their voice boxes and their keyboards. So why are you criticizing them? They're allowed to do that. They have the legal right to complain. Okay, so where it now does get tricky is when the critics of Twitter or Facebook don't merely say, hey, that's not cool, or hey, if you exercise policies like this, it's going to have a bad effect on society because now we're going to be all segregated into our own little echo chambers and not know what the other side's thinking and you know, that... If you're saying that, fine. But then if you go further and say, and this is why the government needs to amend Section 230 and come in and start treating these people as a public utility and, da, 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 and there needs to be standards. And if, if you can show that you were kicked off because of your political views, then that should be construed as a violation of the First Amendment. And da, 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 da. Th that's where I, I withdraw my support and say, no, that's, I, I would say, number one, incorrect from a libertarian perspective. But number two, um, foolish that right now, given what's happening, clearly, I would argue, there's a push from the progressive left, broadly defined, to silence dissent from the right. And now, especially with the Biden-Harris administration, the federal government is totally on board with that. So, you know, we can talk in a bit perhaps on what should we do? What's your solution, Murphy? 
But I'm making the modest point, the solution clearly can't be give the federal government more power. That makes no sense. That's just as goofy as progressives during the Trump years when by their own rhetoric, literally Hitler, trademark, is sitting in the White House and they want the federal government to take over health care. Why would you want Hitler in charge of whether your aunt gets a kidney transplant? That doesn't seem like a good idea. All right, so by the same token, the conservatives who were appalled at how the postmodernist cultural Marxists have taken over academia and all the major media and da, 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 and all of our social institutions. And the one thing we're going to, you know how we're going to stop that? Is we're going to give the federal government control over the internet. And that's the way we're going to ensure fairness and the conservatives get a fair shake. T- to me, that's crazy. But why would you think that? What, what you're doing when you do that is you give the federal government the power to go through and snuff out not just the major social media platforms that are already, you know, captured by the woke left, but any alternatives that we might come up with as we scramble here and try to figure out how are we going to reorganize now that we're getting booted, you're going to give the federal government the power to snuff those things out too if you give them broad power to regulate the internet. Whereas right now there might be some oases where technically they can't get at it and there's a loop, a loophole, as it were, that, that dissident voices can once again organize and talk to each other over the internet. Okay, so, so that's how that goes. But now let me extend the analysis a little bit further. Some people have pointed out, and I think they're right to do so, even though we just established that, and yes, in a free society where everybody respects property rights, there'd be no issue, you know, if a, if a tech company, or social media company kicked you off, that, okay, it's a private company, bro, deal with it. That doesn't mean that that analysis just effortlessly carries over into the real world today. And so let me just change the analogy. Suppose in communist China, they control a lot of stuff and that they do allow one company to you know, be a social media site and technically there's private shareholders. So it's a, it is a private company, at least nominally, but any competitor you know, is, is illegal. There, there's, no, there's no competition that's legally allowed. And if, if that private company allows for the expression of viewpoints that criticize the Chinese regime, then they're going to lose their status as the, you know, as the monopoly provider of social media services and the Chinese government will just defrock them, exile them, and then it'll, it'll anoint some other company to be the sole place that people can now go to get their social media fix from a quote private company. So in that context, if that quote private company kicked you off and now you couldn't communicate with people via the, via the internet, would it just say, hey, it's a private company, quit your belly aching go do something else if you want, you know, go start your own. You say, well, well no, I, I can't start my own because it's literally illegal. I'm, I'm sitting here in communist China. What do you want me to do? So you can see how there to wag your figure and say, hey, it's private. That would just be obtuse. All right. So the real world for us in the United States, and I, with apologies to people who are outside the United States, it's just, but that's, that's how I'm thinking about it at the moment. Is, is clearly somewhere in between those two extremes, right? That we're obviously not in a free market utopia where, hey, private company, do what you want. And you, we're also not in a world where there's only one social media company and it's literally illegal to do anything that competes with it. So when we say, hey, it's a private company, it, it's, you know, what if it turns out that the reason, because this really is kind of a, an interesting conundrum then why is it that Twitter and Facebook exercise their policies for community standards in such a biased fashion, right? So for example, you're not allowed to publish things that are hateful or that might incite violence. And I, and I totally think that that's good, right? But when you see how those are applied, those principles, it's ridiculous, right? It, it'd be like if there was this posted speed limit of 55 miles per hour and everybody goes over it and the police just started pulling over people who had Trump's bumper stickers and the only people who ever got speeding tickets were Trump supporters. 
that you could say, hey, you broke the law, That's what, but you can see how that would be kind of weird and, and unfair. And so likewise, when that was his name, Nick Sandman, something like that, I forget, the, the kid with the MAGA hat that was staring down the Native American man in D.C. a while back, and there were blue check marks, you know, people connected to Hollywood saying all kinds of, oh, I've never seen such a punchable face. And one guy literally said, I'd like to take this kid and feed him into my wood chipper, something like that. And that tweet stayed up there. You know, it wasn't like he said that in a moment of drunken rage. And then the next morning, oh my gosh, faced with this huge backlash and Twitter telling him, you better take that down or you're booted, mister. No, it was fine. Why? Because it was a kid with a MAGA hat and it was, it was popular at the time. It was the two minute hate was directed against that kid in that period in our history. So that's fine. You know, people, comedians can have a severed, you know, a picture of them holding a severed Trump head. Obviously it wasn't real. And that's cool. That's just art, man, or that's comedy, whatever. What a, what a brave political statement. But somebody talking about, hey, I think the election may uh, have had some irregularities and I'm not so sure Biden won. Whoa, you can't say that on Twitter. That might incite people to violence, right? <laughs> so do you see that this, this double standard is ludicrous? So my point being, just reminding you of what I'm talking about, it, isn't it odd? Like, how can that be profit maximizing, right? If you're hosting a social media site, if that's your business, you know, you might, you might have thought they would be real bland and not, not really take strong stands one way or the other, right? You, you could imagine, you know, so how to like, um, how when you go to Disney World, like the roller coasters aren't really all that scary or anything. It's like, it's real bland. It's real like, hey, we don't want to offend anybody. And so you might have thought the social media sites would be real, you know, draconian on, hey, you can't criticize, you can't insult people. Certainly you can't recommend taking a teenager and putting them in a wood chipper. That's, I mean, that's where I draw the line, mister. You might think that, but no, that's not how it plays out in practice. In practice, people on the left are allowed to literally fantasize about murdering their opponents or punching them in the case of Nazis. And that's cool. That's a <laughs> good, good show, sir. That's fine. Even blue checkmark people can say that and not lose their coveted status. And yet conservatives can't even say that they think an election might have been uh, conducted unfairly because someone might think that really what you mean by that is go to D.C. and show Mike Pence, you know, what it is. Step outside and show him what it's like. So um, that's crazy. Besides it being crazy, the question is, why are they doing that? And there's different explanations, but I think partly this equilibrium was maintained because of government intervention. All right? And I am not confident enough in the specifics to say what I think it is. All right? I don't, for one thing, I don't, I don't understand the tech world enough to be able to say exactly what the constraints are facing this company or these companies. But I mean, it could be real things that you wouldn't, might not even have thought of. Like, for example, if a company knows that down the road it's going to want to have a merger with some other company and it has to get the FTC and other relevant agencies to sign off on that, right? Because if you want to merge, especially your, you know, your big companies, you want to engage in a merger, the federal government has to sign off on that to make sure it's not violating antitrust provisions, stuff like that. So there's all sorts of ways the federal government can hurt your business if they want to. So you have to stay on their good side. And so again, among other things, it could be that the people, you know, running these companies just know this is what's in right now. Progressive wokeism is so hot right now. And also too, by the way, I'm not saying the people running these companies actually are fans of Hans Hoppe, but because of the institutional constraints, they're pretending to be, no, I'm, I'm saying with these people, I'm sure lots of it, it's just, that's who they are. But the, my point is, in other contexts, market forces usually weed out that sort of bias, right? Like the guy running your pizza shop probably wants to be able to sell to both Republicans and Democrats, and so won't be too over the top about his political views. Certainly a major chain normally wouldn't be so over the top about it. And yet it is paradoxical that big companies are very much embracing of the woke ma mantra 
And so why is that? So let me just mention this to try to figure out how did this happen or why is it happening? I think there's a lot of stuff that the progressive left wants to impose on America and the rest of the world, but let's just focus on America. And they know if they try to do it directly via the government, there would be all sorts of legal constitutional roadblocks. Like let's say you're a progressive leftist and you want everybody in the workplace to receive uh, training on how to be an anti-racist and, you know, for especially the white employees to receive training on their white fragility and to say, hey, if, if you don't think you're a racist, it's because you're mistaken. And that's actually just part of your privilege that you actually think you're not. And let's, let's bring in and have this seminar. Da, da, da. So if the federal government were to try to pass a law saying every employee in America needs to receive this training, that's, they, they can't do that right now. That wouldn't work. So instead, what if you just say, well, there's lots of people who work for big companies. What if we just get all the big companies to have that as part of their standard onboarding process or, you know, just part of their standard stuff that every year their employees have to go for another seminar on this stuff. So, hey, it's a private company, bro. They can do what they want. There's nothing, there's nothing unconstitutional about major companies making their employees go to such seminars. And so you could, what you could do if you wanted to get that outcome, instead of trying to get the federal government to directly mandate it, you instead could get the companies to do it and the leverage you would put on them would still be via the federal government. But it wouldn't just be a direct mandate to say, hey, you got to give seminars on anti-racism. It could just be understood that you have to be a responsible corporate citizen if you want us to, you know, not enforce the letter of the law when it comes to Sarbanes-Oxley, when it comes to environmental regulations, when it comes, because at any given time, a big Fortune 500 company that's got operations all over the place, they're probably breaking all sorts of rules that the federal government has in, in place. And so the only way they can actually do business is if those things aren't enforced meticulously. And again, it's kind of thing like everybody goes over the speed limit usually. And so that that's the, the cops can just pull over anybody they want to, you know, just somebody who looks suspicious, the police can pull them over because they're probably breaking some kind of traffic law. So likewise, these big companies, if for some reason they're unpopular, the federal government can lean on them in all sorts of ways. And so just because of stuff like that, it's in the interest of these big companies to, again, be a responsible corporate citizen. And so if they know that, oh, the wave of the future is all this woke stuff, they want to get on board with that and show, look at, look at all the stuff we're doing here. All right, so as far as, uh, you know, what do we do about this? <laughs> I thought of this analogy. I can understand why conservative types get exasperated with libertarians. It's, it's like we're in the Super Bowl and the other side's coming at us and they just scored. And now it's ours. You know, we got possession and they look to the libertarian and they say, okay, what do we do? What's the, what's the, what's the game plan? And the libertarian just takes out the rule book and starts saying, well, there are four downs. Here's where, you know, the yard markers are. This is where the out of bounds lines are. Make sure you don't take the ball over that line because then you'll be out of bounds. And, he, and the libertarian just starts reciting the rules of football. And, you know, you, you could see the frustration. Like, oh, okay, but we're, we're trying to score right now. What, what do we do? Like, are we passing? Are we running? What do we, what do, we do? <laughs> and then the libertarian, well, let me just make sure you understand the rules here. It would be illegal for us to do. And so that's partly, you know, I think the frustration where the conservatives, okay, okay they're, they're kicking us off en masse from social media sites and you libertarians are sitting there talking about private companies and what they have the right to do in a free society. And, and I don't care about that right now. So I get that. Even in that football analogy, though, if, if what the conservative says, okay, well, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to pull up baseball bats and use that so that our runner can get through, it is appropriate for the libertarian to say, actually, that would be a violation of the rules and we're going to get called against, you know, that's, that's not legal. So that, that would be okay, right? So <laughs> the libertarian is providing a service if, in merely shooting down proposals of, quote, what should we do that are bad ideas, Okay, but I can see how if that's all you do is to shoot down ideas, people get mad. 
So here, again, I, I can say, partly because this episode now is running long, and also because I don't know enough of the particulars, um, all I can do is give a strategy and say what the libertarian should do in a situation like this is say, yeah, this is probably not a, quote, free market outcome that all of these customers are getting kicked off websites, um, especially when the, the, the model of the website is to have people seeing ads. And so they want people on the website. So that seems odd that Facebook and Twitter would be kicking off so many of their own customers. Um, so that's presumably not a free market outcome. There must be government intervention that's involved. But the way to fix that is not to just give the government more power, which is what some people are proposing to do by like classifying Twitter and other places as public utilities. So I think what is the correct thing to do from a libertarian perspective and the wise course of action, just strategically forget about your principles, but just in terms of how are we going to win, um, I think what you should do is look through and try to identify what are the actual government interventions right now that are fostering this outcome. Like, is it, are there legal roadblocks in place to set up rival uh, social media sites, for example? You know, what, you know, what, what is it? And examples of things like, oh, well, because then the credit card companies don't allow this. You know, so I realize I've, I've heard people talk about why it's so difficult and it's, you know, it's too flippant of an answer to say, oh, you don't like Twitter, Facebook? Go start your own thing. You know, what if Amazon, who was hosting it, you know, says you can't use our servers? Well, geez, okay, well, go start your own server company. Okay, what if the credit card companies say, well, we're not going to do business with anybody that tries to pay this website with our credit cards, right? So you got to, you know, pretty soon you're going to reinvent planet Earth. But point being go through and try to identify, okay, what are the specific legal restraints or constraints on this entrepreneurial activity that normally we would think would quickly go around these obviously biased decisions by the existing industry giants. So again, I, I'm not here giving the answer. That's why I'm calling this a framework. But I hope these thoughts have at least helped you sift through these issues and think about them more clearly so we can come up with a better solution. Thanks for your attention, everybody, and I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.